Welcome to Water for Fighting, where we discuss the past, present, and future of water in Florida with the people who make it happen. I'm your host, Brett Cyphers. This episode of Water for Fighting is brought to you by my friends at Sea and Shoreline and Resource Environmental Solutions. Sea and Shoreline is the Southeast leading innovator in protecting coastal communities from devastating storms and restoring ecosystems that once faced ecological collapse. Visit their website at www.seaandshoreline.com. And Res is the nation's leader in ecological restoration, helping to restore Florida's natural resources with water quality and stormwater solutions that offer communities guaranteed performance and outcomes. Check them out at www.res.us. Estes Whitfield was the primary advisor to six, that's right, six Florida governors as it relates to the environment. He oversaw the creation of the full complement of water management districts in the state, the creation of the Florida Department of Environmental Protection as it stands today, the Save Our Everglades program, as well as the Save Our Rivers and Preservation 2000 land acquisition programs. And that's just for starters. Let me pile on a little bit more. He served in the Florida National Guard and served in the United States Navy on active duty and the reserves, retiring as a captain. Can't wait to talk about that. He is currently a senior advisor with Dawson & Associates, a consulting firm out of Washington, D.C., and I could not be happier to have him with me today. Estes, how are you doing, sir? Doing fine. Awesome. Before we get into the details of your life and career, got a whole bunch of questions there. I'm going to skip straight to an unfair question. Over the years, I've served under four governors, but you hold the current record for our guest of six governors. So tell me your favorite and why. And also, you can also ignore that completely and say it's a tie for you know first place with a six or however you want to do it. But I know it's unfair, but go ahead. Yeah. Well, every governor I worked for uh, had their merits, in my opinion. Uh, Bob Graham was probably the smartest person I've, one of the smartest persons I've ever dealt with. Uh, I mean, I used to compare him to a microbiologist and a telescopic guy. I mean, he could talk about uh, a, a very minor budget detail in one minute and then be talking about 20 years in the future. Bob Martinez was probably the most personable governor I worked for. Very nice guy, tremendous guy. I knew Lawton Childs real well, walking Lawton, and he did some good things for Florida. Uh, I worked uh, previously in the Ruben Askew administration and was a uh, futurist guy, a no BS kind of fella. Jeb Bush, I worked for him for four or five months. You know, Jeb is Jeb. Uh, I worked also briefly during the uh, Wayne Nixon administration, which was three days. (laughs) And I was his main man. My wife painted his portrait for him. And I wrote his cabinet agenda word for word. And he read it, did it. And Buddy McKay, I worked for him for a while. Mm-hmm. Buddy was a very cerebral kind of guy, good guy, uh, still is. So that's kind of my rundown of the of the governors I work for. I like it. That works. All right. So we get that part out of the way, and we'll kind of mix in some of that as we as okay. we go through. But let's go to the beginning of Estes Whitfield. 
You were born in Niceville here in Florida in the Panhandle for those unfamiliar with this end of the state. But both your parents were born out of state, which is not unusual. Right. Talk about them a little, where they were born and how they got here to Florida. Well, my dad came from Picayune, Mississippi in the 1930s. They came to Nashville for timber and turpentine purposes. He was in the Civil Conservation Corps, worked in uh, Homestead and Olesti. And then my granddaddy, who was uh, William Thomas Kelly, built our house in Nashville, which is about 650 square feet. And that's that's where I grew up. My mother, whose daddy was William Thomas Kelly, came from South Alabama, and he all, he told me that he was raised on sweet potatoes and salbelly. And but he lived to be 104 years old. Wow! So I had a an interesting family in that in that regard. I was born in Crestview because that was my my dad's preferred hospital rather than a mile down the road in Valparaiso. So I was I, I spent three or four days in Crestview and the rest of my youth in Nashville. Mm. We called it Boggy. Boggy Bio used to be the name of the place. Wow. And and then I later went off, went to high school, went to college, Troy State. Then I worked for the Oklahoma County Health Department for about a year. Mm joined the National Guard, and when Robert McNamara started talking about mobilizing the National Guard to send to Vietnam, I decided I didn't want to do that because I was a an E-1 or E-0. Mm. And so I joined the Navy and went to Officer Candidate School in Newport, Rhode Island, and spent four years on active duty, and then I stayed in the Reserve uh, for the next 25 26 years. Let me let me let me stop you. Just I want to I want to take it a little slower and go through your early life cuz I want to I, I want to take some more time <clears throat> talking about your your time in the Navy especially cuz you you sure. served during the Vietnam era. But I want to get back to what a, what a difference you go from a place called Boggy and they changed the name to Niceville. Is that is that what happened? They changed it to, it seems like two ends of the spectrum there in terms of a name for a town. Talk about, talk about Niceville. Talk about the panhandle in general when you were growing up. What was it like back then? When I grew up in Niceville, that was between 1942 and 1960. Niceville had a population of roughly 4,000. You know, to put it mildly, it was a rough and tumble place, <laughs> mostly fishing and timbering and Air Force Base, Eglin Air Force Base was a mile away. So we had a combination of dye-in-the-wool rednecks and Air Force people. I could talk all day about that, but it was it was tough, rough and tumble, but I wouldn't change a thing. What was a what was a, a day in the life of S.S. Whitfield in those days? Did you spend it outdoors? You said your dad did forestry and things like that, right? It's like, what, did you spend much time with him? Yeah, uh, my dad worked for the Jackson Guard, which was a unit of Eglin Air Force Base, and he helped manage roughly five hundred thousand acres of Eglin Air Force Base. Right, he was a game warden, a firefighter, other you know, pine planter. Wow. And I, I would 
go out with him from time to time and climb the towers and watch him do what he did. So that was my heritage, and that's why I got so interested in it. I was a, a big deer hunter for years and years, not anymore. So a day in my life in Niceville was either, you know, playing marbles, playing hopscotch, deer hunting, or, you know, just wading around in the swamp behind my house. We had Turkey Creek. Turkey Creek runs through Niceville, and there's a, an expansive swamp. I could walk 200 feet out of my back door and be in that swamp. So I waded around in the swamp quite a bit. I spent a lot of time outdoors. Uh, you know, that kind of molded my thoughts about, you know, what I'm going to do. So is your house, the, the house that you grew up in, is it still there today? No. And I guess that's my, my question. I, I figured the answer would probably be no. Is the panhandle, or I guess, it, let's, I mean, from whether it be Niceville or the panhandle in general, it's still very rural, but yeah. is it recognizable still to you, that area? Not today? not too much. Uh, Niceville has grown into you know, the population of Niceville, but there's notable amount of Air Force and military retirees there. So I suspect it's probably twenty or 30,000 now. I, I wouldn't recognize it. I, I couldn't even hardly identify the place that I used to live because everything has changed. Uh, the administration of Nashville, Vanny Corbin, was the longest standing city manager in, in this country. He retired uh, this year, but he did a tremendous job with uh, managing Nashville, with preserving Turkey Creek and doing parks, and, and, and Bill McCartney helped him hmm. quite a bit. What subjects were your favorite in school in those days, prior to, prior to college? In high school? Well, in high school, I think shop was my favorite. Okay. And then uh, typing and, you know, home economics type stuff. Uh, I, I had a real bad experience with, with math and biology. I had a questionable biology teacher. was a former Detroit line, wow. uh, lineman. He taught me how to forget about algebra. So uh, my favorite subjects were, were shop, and uh, I enjoyed biology. I enjoyed biology. Right, because you, you finish up. I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to draw the connection. It's like, well, what you did as a kid and, and being around and, and, and being out in the swamp and doing things like that, and then your school experience, which usually has some a tendril that runs through it to take you to college, but it seems like almost by, by accident you know, nearly, you end up going, when you go to Troy State, you study biology, which also takes math to do. Not as much as some others, but still plenty of math. Well, you know, the quality of school teachers in high school varies. And and I had some, some good ones, and I had some bad ones. The biology teacher, I, I don't even think he knew what a amoeba was. The math teacher didn't know what two plus two was so that was poor experiences mm. for me did you end up in a way learning some of the the more complicated mathematics when you went to college well when i went to college i started off taking business administration because that's what people told me i should do but when i started trying to understand statistics accounting 
I decided that was not my main feature. So I shifted to biology. I did real well. I had some very good professors uh, in, at, at Troy. So uh, I wound up with a, a BS in biology. And what were the years that you were at Troy? Is that, was that the early 60s? I graduated from high school in 1960. Okay. And I went to Troy, okay. to Troy from 60 to 65. The reason I ask is the, the 60s were still pretty early days, right, for our knowledge of ecosystems and yeah. how humans can impact them. What was your perception in those early days, you know, the 60 to 65 years in terms of environmental issues? I'd say very little knowledge and appreciation of it. The first time I ever heard the word ecosystem was a professor said it at Troy. And we all looked around and said, what's an ecosystem? So, but I, I learned a lot of the basics. You know, you go to college, my perception of going to college is not to learn everything you need to know, but just learn to know the difference between right and wrong and true and false. And, and that's what I got out of Troy, University of Florida. Now I want to get to some of that military service. You- Talk about that some because a little bit more because you you went to the National Guard, but it was for a year, the best I can tell, and then active duty in the Navy. And this is all this is right in the middle of the Vietnam War at this point, right? Yeah. Talk about that, the National Guard and then your transition to to the Navy because it was active duty first. Well, the National Guard, like I said, I was an E zero. Right. We drilled in Crestview once every two weeks. And I didn't learn anything from the National Guard. I was just in it to avoid being drafted. That was the reason I joined the Guard, to avoid being drafted, because I was A1. But when Secretary of Defense McNamara made an announcement that he was thinking about mobilizing the National Guard, I decided that I'd had enough National Guard. So I went to the Air Force recruiter Mm -hmm. at, at Eglin, but I never could find him. He was always somewhere else and unavailable. So I called the uh, Navy recruiter in Pensacola, and they said, come over here, we'll, we'll sign you up right away. So uh, I was signed up in the Navy, sent to Newport, Rhode Island, officer candidate school. When I got out of that, I was assigned to the USS Piedmont, AD-17, which was a uh, destroyer repair ship. And I spent a year and a half, roughly, on on the Piedmont uh, servicing destroyers. I was the uh, assistant weapons officer. And after that tour was over, I was transferred to the USS Luce, DLG-7. That's a uh, large destroyer, I mean, the classic warship. And so I spent two years on it as the submarine warfare officer. They sent me to anti-warfare, ASW, anti-warfare school in Key West for two or three months. And then I went to the uh, the Luce. And, and we traveled the world and stuff. That, that was quite an experience uh, on the Luce. Yeah. You, I, I can tell you, one time we were in Masawi, Ethiopia. The ship was in port, and it was a beautiful ship, and it was the talk of the town, and everybody came to see it. And 
I relieve the officer of the deck. The officer of the deck is in charge of the ship when the captain's not there. So I relieve the officer of the deck. We stand on the quarter deck of the ship. And, and this guy said, all is quiet, nothing happening. Don't worry about it. Don't sweat it. Try to stay awake. <laughs> well, about 15 minutes later, my junior officer of the deck said, what is, what is that? And he pointed over to the pier, and there were four guys walking toward the ship. And one of them had big plumes out of his hat, and the others had decorations all over. And he said, is a circus coming? I said, I, I don't know. <laughs> and they, they walked up the quarter deck of the ship, and I said, can I help you? And he said something that I didn't understand. And I said, will you say that real slow? I said, who are you? He said, I'm Haile Selassie, king of Ethiopia. Mm. And I came, I came to have dinner with the captain. <laughs> wow. Wow. Man, what a, what a story. Did you end up during that time, my father was in the Navy during Vietnam, younger than you at the time, and he was on a destroyer, but it was in the Tonkin Gulf. Did you end up being over there, or was it, or, or were you just sailing the, the world at this point? Well, our ship on the Piedmont, the first ship I was on, we were in the uh, South China Sea. Mm. We spent a lot of time in Kaohsiung, Taiwan, and around in that area. But we never went to Vietnam. We never crossed the, the borderline. We spent most of our time in the Persian Gulf and around Africa and, mm -hmm. and places like that, Spain and so forth. So I never, we never saw any... Uh, Other than national leaders coming to have dinner with <laughs> your captain. There, there was a lot of hot action, but it wasn't yeah. the Vietnamese. Right, right. How long did you stay on active duty in the Navy? Three years, nine months on active duty. Okay. And the rest of my time was in, in the reserve. How many total years? If you take the beginning of the National Guard to when you retired as a captain, which is a big deal to make captain in the Navy... How long was that? Was that thirty years total, or I, I think it was. I think it was actually thirty-two. Okay, as I recall. Okay, thirty-two total. And it seems like your general interest in environmental issues, the outdoors, survived the '60s. You know, and your time on a boat, because you ended up in the master's degree program in forestry and wildlife ecology and that's 1970 at university of florida that's a pretty famous actually well-known program there i've known you know many people that have gone through it talk about that though why uf and why that degree program well my my bs was in biology mm -hmm. so i wanted to go into forestry and wildlife was always an interest so the forestry and wildlife ecology program at the University of Florida was very appealing. And I was able to use the, the only way I could do it was to use the... Uh, GI Bill? Was that the... Yeah, the GI Bill. Right. So that, that paid for my University of Florida. So I really enjoyed that. Fun and interesting and educational. So, you know, I, I was very proud to, to have done that. Mm. Let's take a minute to talk about my friends at Sea and Shoreline. Since its inception in 2014, Sea and Shoreline's unmatched experience with scientifically validated methods of aquatic restoration has proven successful across more than 150 environmental projects. 
the company continues to be the industry leader in rehabilitating threatened and corrupted aquatic environments with proven success in places such as Crystal River, Homosassa River, the Caloosahatchee River, and the Indian River Lagoon. I've seen firsthand how Sea and Shoreline completely reset the ecosystem and Crystal River, transforming from a mucky, algae-dominated system to one with plants that actually belong there. The water used to be full of lingbia and hydrilla, with a thick bottom layer of muck that smelled like rotten eggs. But with Sea and Shoreline's comprehensive muck removal and planting of native eelgrasses, the system is now beautiful, crystal clear with lush eelgrass meadows. The manatees are feasting, fish have returned, ecotourism is booming, and property values have significantly increased. Sea and Shoreline is committed to restoring and preserving Florida's communities and aquatic ecosystems because they're Floridians, and these are their communities too. To find out how you can partner with Sea and Shoreline to help your community, visit them at www.seaandshoreline.com. You'll be glad you did. All right, back to the conversation. This is probably more of a, a me problem than a general problem, but before we leave the 60s completely, and when you were in Okaloosa County in the 60s, you were, I think a year you spent, and I saw it on your, your resume, a sanitarian for Okaloosa County. I didn't, I had to look up what a sanitarian is. What is a sanitarian for, for somebody else out there who may not know? Yeah. And what did you do as one? Well, as a sanitarian, my job was to inspect septic tank installations inspect restaurants for sanitation, inspect grocery stores for sanitation. And that was the main feature, septic tanks and inspection of uh, businesses that dealt f- with food. And, and it, was, it was a good job. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I mean, there, there's always ups and downs. Uh, sure. I could, I could tell you some stories about that too, but that, that was it. I mean, well, you have the inside track on where, I guess, not to eat, you know, in, in and around uh, Okaloosa County. It's now, I mean, you look, you, the way you described it, there are, I think, three different agencies that do that now. You know, for, you know, that one job that you did is now split into, you know, at least, I think at least three that I can think of. Yeah, I walked in, I walked in and inspected, you know, a couple of the top class are considered the best premier restaurants in Hercules County. And when I walked in the kitchen, I mean, it was a whole different story. And the grocery stores were the same way. I saw I saw meat cutting saws where the, the drippings fell into the bin. And there were little wigglies. Uh, wow. But the septic tanks, I know a lot about septic tanks. And I see a lot of stuff come in about, you know, we need to... We need a septic tank bill to make sure that septic tanks are inspected every two years or something like that, that they're, they're working just right. And the proposers of those bills typically don't know anything about septic tanks. You can pump a septic tank, and they, they can't get all the, the solids out. There's some stuck on the side and some left in the bottom. And a septic tank will fill back up in about four or five days with normal use and and be doing the same thing that it does. And the key to a septic tank uh, operation is the drain field. 
The drain field is is the problem with septic tanks, if there's a problem. And I live on Lakeshore Drive, about 200 yards from Lake Jackson, and I've got a septic tank. And the people behind, even closer to the lake, have septic tanks that have drain fields, you know, running right toward the lake. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's incredible. And I don't, I don't understand why sanitary sewage is not required certainly in places like where i live i wonder in 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 some of the some of the places that i've seen you look at i mean in leon county is a pretty decent example that when you talk about septic tanks and central sewer a lot of it is really how many connections can i get for a mile of pipe and so maybe the the cost benefit you know compared to say closer to the cody scarp down south you know below capital circle um, here in tallahassee but I'm curious what you think about the advent of the newer septic tank technologies that are out there. I, I, mean, I work directly with someone who has a, a technology that gets really good treatment mm-hmm. for about the cost you know, of a normal, either average connection cost for the central sewer. What do you think about that technology that's out there now? Honestly, Brett, I'm not that familiar with that technology. I've read about it. It sounds good. Uh, but I, 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 I don't know the details of it. The curiosity for me is like, there are always going to be places that are hard to reach, but are still environmentally sensitive. Obviously we have a bunch of those in Northwest Florida and over in that Swanee river water management district kind of area. Yeah. And so for, you know, so for me, it's like, how do you find these, these solutions to those places where otherwise you'll continue to get that hesitancy by, you know, like by the, by folks like Leon County. You know, on, on high and dry sandy land, mm-hmm. a septic tank is fine. Right. The, 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 you know, what bothers me is you go down to St. Lucie and Martin and Palm Beach County and, you know, places along the lower east coast, and there are hundreds of thousands of septic tanks down there. That's right. And, and they wonder what What's wrong with the St. Lucie Inlet? What's wrong with the Caloosahatchee Inlet, mm-hmm. the Caloosahatchee uh, River and Bay? But there are thousands of septic tanks down there, and they're mm-hmm. all draining eventually into the, you know, the bays. And I guess I would wait for later on to ask that. But, I mean, under the circumstances, do, have you followed the pattern of state policy as it's shifted over the last several years related to septic tanks it seems like this past session was one of those big kind of metaphorical watershed moments where they're really going after these septic tanks now because you look at the basin management action plans where you have the you know these impairments that are choking you know the indian river lagoon and places that you're talking about st lucie and clusahatchee and it seems like they're actually moving in that direction have you followed that much? Well, to, to some degree, and I agree that you know some impressive efforts are, are going on. Uh, you know the the proof is in the pudding. Mm-hmm. You know you, that's right. You, that's my question. Right. Well, l- let's get back to you moving into a place where you're doing both, and you finished grad school. And I'm looking at your resume, and it looks like you started working straight for the state out of grad school. Did I do I have that right? Yes. Was that directly into I know it was a office of planning and budget back then or yeah. so what what was that like? You what you you know I I 
served in OPB. They called it policy and budget you know, now. And when I was there, and I think the nature of its functions has changed over the years. But for those who don't know what that office is like, first, what is it? You know, what does it oversee? And what purpose did it serve? And then second, how do you think it's changed over time, if at all? When I was hired in the Office of Planning and Budgeting, we had a unit called Bureau of Comprehensive Planning. And we actually did a state comprehensive plan. No plans were ever implemented, and this comprehensive plan was was never even close to being implemented, but that's what we did. But the main purpose and the main function of the Office of Planning and Budgeting was principally budgeting. We reviewed and approved the budgets of all the state agencies. I was in the environmental unit, and, and we handled DOT and DNR at the time, natural resources, and which later became DEP, and community affairs and agriculture, and the five water management districts. And so that was the main stay of the Office of Planning and Budgeting. I don't know why they even keep the name planning in there anymore, because I don't know that there's any real planning going on. I mean, maybe there is. And maybe I, I haven't been involved with them for quite a while. Well, at some point, they, they changed the name from planning and budget to policy and budget. When I started there, and it may have been under under the, that Bush period yeah. when they changed the name. It could be. But, that, you know, so it probably still to your to your point that you were trying to make, though, in terms of what it what it does. When you say we're doing policy, what is it? Well, I mean, let's talk about that. You you were there. You got there at and stayed through probably one of the most, if not the most consequential period for environmental policy in in Florida, probably in and probably the nation, because I think Florida is a pretty bit is a happens to be a, a leader in, in these types of issues. So from the early seventies to the end of the twentieth century, that's pretty huge. And it's not planning that you were doing. It is massive environmental policy initiatives. And it's not to say that things haven't happened since. It's just it went really fast during your time. So t- I want you to talk about those early days. So the influence of new federal relations. First, talk about the influence of new federal regulations and the creation of the United States EPA and how Florida viewed those environmental issues. And then what was your first big policy lift when when you were there? You know, history goes in cycles. There's peaks and troughs. And in the 70s and 80s and part of the 90s, there was tremendous interest in environment, growth management, and, you know, doing the things that environmental and growth management people thought were in the best interest. That that was the mainstay. And so I guess you could call that policy, but that had, that waned off in the, I'd say, the late 90s. I mean, in my opinion, it hasn't been back since. Now, there's a lot of talk about, you know, legislation that, you know, will save the Everglades and take care of the sewage septic tank problem. But, you know, the proof is still in the pudding on on all of those things. But back then in the 70s and 80s and early 90s, there was a publication that came out from the federal government. It was called 
OMB Circular A95, and that established state clearinghouses. And I was in charge of the state clearinghouse. And that Circular A95, and it's still probably relevant, but it's not implemented, any federal activity in Florida had to be reviewed and approved by the state clearinghouse. So I and a group of people from other agencies looked at all DOT projects, EPA projects, Corps of Engineer projects in particular, and we would say, that's okay, you gotta change it like this, or we disapprove it altogether. The federal government had to do it. Now, I don't, I don't think that there's probably still a state clearinghouse somewhere out at DEP, but mm. I, I'm not sure what function they do. I, 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 I don't know. Let's take a minute to talk about my friends at Resource Environmental Solutions. Our state presents unique challenges with its diverse ecosystems, landscapes, and the many demands on its natural resources. That's why RES uses an innovative approach and creative solutions to help municipalities, agencies, and local water resource groups navigate the ever-changing landscape of environmental regulations in Florida and throughout the country. RES actively restores habitats, hydrological regimes, and ecosystem functions across Florida, from the Panhandle to the Heartland, to the Florida Keys and everywhere in between. They focus on restoring floodplains and wetlands and improving water quality, which benefits a wide array of species that call Florida home. With an unwavering commitment to Florida's unique ecological communities, RES upholds long-term stewardship practices, guaranteeing sustainable outcomes that endure. Discover more about their work and commitment to Florida's communities and the environmental challenges they face by visiting www.res.us. All right, now back to the conversation. Talk for a minute about, because it's the thing that's the biggest one for me. It's like I, you know, I, I came from OPB, but I ended up in water management districts. And that's where I, you know, that's where my real love was, was to work on issues like that. Talk about the, your memory of the creation of water management districts in those days. We had the South Florida and, and Southwest, like, but as a whole, the way they the way they stand now what was that transition like over the years well the south florida water management district was the central district uh, long before the other water management districts came along and, and southwest was there i thought it was very logical to create other water management districts based on hydrological boundaries which which has happened I think that was brilliant, uh, and it wasn't my idea. It was somebody smarter than me that came up with that, but it worked, and I think it. I think it still works, uh, you know. And it, you know, again, things go in peaks and troughs. Mm-hmm. Do you do you remember who who made that happen? Did it emanate from the governor's office, or was it the, someone in the legislature? The best I recall. Brett, I'm not sure that I'm right. Reuben Askew established a, a study group way way back in the uh, uh, early 70s, and they came up with, with some really creative and astounding features. And I, I'm not sure this was one of them, but Reuben Askew 
really initiated some of the uh, most profound changes to Florida's environmental programs. And then Bob Graham, I mean, he was he was great doing that stuff too. And so talk about getting back to the, the question before, do you recall which one of those big landmark policy programs that you were directly involved in the creation? And if not the water management districts, was it, what was the first one for you? Well, in 1983, well, the CARL program, I was involved with the CARL, Conservation, Recreation, and Acquisition Program. Mm-hmm. And then I was involved in Preservation 2000. I mean, I was a point person Preservation 2000, which was also land acquisition program. I think it's called Florida Forever now. Was CARL the first state buying, uh, land buying program in Florida? Well, the first broad scale acquisition program was okay. the Carl. The state had bought some land or got some land out of the uh, settlement of the, the jet port, Miami, 1983 or even leading up to 1983. Bob Graham, with my, my help, a little help, established the Save Our Everglades program. To me, that was, to me, that was landmark. And that has led to, you know, the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Program, which which is plugging along. Mm-hmm. Well, who were some of those early players when you were developing the Save Our Everglades Program? What were some of the the personalities like in working through that? Well, we dealt with Art Marshall, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, Nelson Blake. Tell me who Art, Art Marshall is. Marjorie Stone Douglas, Douglas is a very famous name for, yeah. for folks around here, but... But who is who is he? Art Marshall was a uh, he was he was in the military in World War II and did some you know pretty tough stuff. I think he was a captain. Anyway, he after he got out of the military, he wound up uh, working with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and he lived in. I think West Palm Beach, and he came up with the concept of repairing the Everglades. He's the first guy that said, "Let's repair the Everglades." Mm-hmm. We we changed it to restore the Everglades. He wanted to convert it back to the original Everglades, which was not possible then and not right. possible now. But uh, Art Marshall is a, a famous name in in the, you know the early history of Florida's. Uh, Everglades. I was asked by a mutual friend of ours to have you tell an origin story of Everglades restoration as a thought process, and it included an issue of Sports Illustrated magazine. You want to you want to tell that story? Sure. Bob Graham, as a a senator, a, a Florida senator, was one of the the better environmental senators that we've ever had with with growth management and and environmental stuff when he got elected governor he seemed to be concentrating on transportation and education and criminal justice well that irritated a lot of a lot of people because they didn't think he was paying enough attention to the environment so johnny jones uh you know who i'm talking about johnny jones mm, i don't johnny jones was the uh president of the florida wildlife federation and so Johnny Johnny teamed up with a guy named Boyle, uh, I can't remember his first name, with Sports Illustrated. 
They wrote an article, a big law article. Johnny Jones called me up one morning and said, go up to the Black Cat newsstand here in Tallahassee mm -hmm. and pick up a copy of Sports Illustrated. So I did. And, and that was just before we had our morning staff meeting where, you know, the governor presided over the, the whole staff. Right. And so I, I, took that, I took that magazine in there, and when the meeting was over, I said, Governor, here, look at this. The good news is on the front. It was Christy Brinkley. And the bad news starts on page 23. Mm. So he looked through that and said, stay a while. And after that, he never, he never looked back. It was, he said, we're going, we're going to take care of the Everglades. So we can credit uh, Christy Brinkley for Everglades restoration then. I'm kidding. She, she got our attention. Indeed. She can do that. Let me ask you, how hard was it to leave OPB in the governor's office after, was it 28 years? Were you ready to move on? Yeah, Brett, after 28 years, and I guess 30 years, I, I had bought my National Guard time, mm -hmm. and some of my military time. So with that, I, I think I had over 30 years, and, and I had invested in the, the drop program. So I had money mm -hmm. uh, saved up. And when Jeb Bush came in, I, I don't want to say anything negative about Jeb, but we just, I, I didn't get along with that administration. Mm -hmm. And they replaced me with uh, Allison DeFore, who was previously the sheriff of uh, Monroe County. And Allison's a very good friend of mine. But I, I just didn't jive with, with the Bush administration, so I left. And as I recall, they wanted me to stay on as a consultant. But by that time, I had already picked up a couple of consulting jobs. And I said, that would be a conflict of interest, so I can't do it. So I, I left. Yeah, and you stayed act, obviously active in, in the environmental policy realm over the years, you know, since then. That's, you know, you know over 20 years now. And I was saying at the the beginning of the show, you didn't hear this part because I did it during the the intro that I'll record later or recorded earlier. And the thing that struck me is you were always willing. I started a few years after that. You were always willing to talk through policy issues with me. When I was there, you were there to help me think through the complexities of the work. Cause I was, I was new. I didn't, you know, I didn't know these things that, you know, nearly the experience and, and firsthand knowledge that, that you did. Uh, let me ask you a personal question. Why did you help me? And do you still have conversations like that? Did you have conversations like that with other people beyond me? And, and I know Lenny Zeiler in those days as yeah. well, whether it's the governor's office or elsewhere in government. Well, I always thought just inherently that, trying to help people with, with a common cause was, you know, the best thing I could probably do because no individual can do it all. I mean, if you can influence other people by helping them, informing them or whatever, then you, you've done a good thing. Basically, I mean, I still do that. Talk about 
those days. How long have you been with Dawson and Associates? Because we've talked about them. They're out of D.C. Was that in those early days or is that more recent? I've been associated with Dawson for probably seven or eight years. Okay. I knew the Corps of Engineers pretty well. I used to fight with them all the time, but uh, I, I got to know some of those people. And a guy named Richard Bonner, he used to be the chief civilian at the Jacksonville District. And and during his, uh, had a retirement party in Jacksonville, and I went to that uh, party. And Richard was there, and a guy named Bob Dawson. And I made a little speech an absurd speech, but a funny speech about <laughs> Richard. And afterwards, Bob Dalton Bob came over and said, uh, would you be interested in working with us? And I said, I don't know. But anyway, that evolved into a relationship with, with Dawson and Associates. So I've worked with them. I, I, don't, I don't get involved in their main business of, of getting people permits. I keep them informed as best I can on what's happening in Florida hmm. by sending them uh, messages and newspaper clippings and press releases and things like that. So hmm. I'm more of a, a marketing person than I am a you know, on-the-ground on worker. It's funny you mentioned that's the second time that you brought up in our conversation about somebody you were fighting with that was a friend of yours. And I think that that a lot of people find those two things to be mutually exclusive, that you can't fight with somebody if they're your friend. That's obviously not how, how you view it. I think everybody evolves and organizations evolve, and I think the core has evolved from, you know, a, a dig dam and, and channel organization into more of a concerned about the, the bigger picture. And so, you know, my, my relationship with them has changed uh, a lot. And, you know, most of the people in Dawson are about 75 or 80 advisors with Dawson. And most of them are retired military people, mostly Corps of Engineers, but some, you know, Navy people or organizations. So, you know, I've got, I've got a lot of friends in the Corps or had a lot of friends. So mm-hmm. I still know a few. Do you still talk to any of the governors that you worked with that are still alive? No. I mean, Bob Graham, is his health is not good, right. but I used to communicate with him quite a bit. In the last few years, I haven't communicated with any of them. Uh, I, was on the, I was on the flight with Lawton Childs coming from Washington, D.C. on the last day of his life. He and I had gone up there to meet with Sandy Berger and some other federal people and flying back. He was chipper and felt good. And then later that night, he had a heart attack and died. Hmm. But I communicated with Bob Martinez a few times since I retired. He he left. But, you know, Martinez is, I don't know how old he is now. Right, right. Do your grandchildren know what your career was was really like? I mean, did did your kids or grandkids get involved in the issues that... You, you dedicated that incredible career to? Well, they know a, a, a little bit here and there about what I did. I don't brag. And none of them have shown any particular interest in, you know, environmental natural resources issues. So, so and I don't, I don't 
I don't press them on it. Well, that's right. You know, you're always curious because it's like the 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 stories are are pretty legendary, you know, as they relate to you know to those times. And so for me, it's always the curiosity of like, do I, how well do I know? you know, my own grandparents, you know, and, you know, when I was, when I was younger and they're still alive. And so that was, that was the curiosity there. That's all. Let's, let's move into a set of questions I ask all of my guests and they're pretty standard, but, but people like them. I like to hear about what folks say about these. What professional accomplishment are you most proud of? I'd say working with Bob Graham on Save, Save the Everglades program. And, and and its evolution. I spent a lot of time working on the Apalachicola River, and that's a particular current interest to me now because I'm I'm from that area. So, but I don't know the state clearinghouse that I mentioned. We caused a lot of I'd, I'd say uh, projects to be changed, approved or, or disapproved. So that that's prominent on my mind. Uh, Okay. Outer Continental Shelf Oil and Gas Program, I was kind of proud to do that, as well as save the rivers and save our coast and the land acquisition. Uh, but the Everglades is, you know, that's the... Sure. When it came to your time inside of government, among those or something else, was there something that you feel was left undone or that you would approach differently than the way you did to get to success? At the time, looking back at what I did and what I was involved in, I don't know that I would have changed anything then. Uh, looking at it now, there's a lot of things I would change. Is there anything that stands out? I, you know, I think about, yeah, yeah I'm curious, the, the, the start of you know, Save Our Everglades to now, it seems like it's going in the right direction. You know, are those, are the, are there, things like that that felt incomplete in the moment or was your mind that hey i set these things in the right direction p2000 wildly successful program you know led to florida forever another wildly successful land acquisition program so i mean so you were satisfied with the direction that all of those things were going you know when when you left when i left i was satisfied yeah are you optimistic about the future of the environment natural systems in Florida, and why? No, because economic development and development is the number one priority. I, I think of, you know, this administration, and I, I, the best hope is to buy as much land as we can, as, as these programs can 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 buy. Because what isn't in public ownership is going to be developed one day, in my opinion. Now, either buy it or buy conservation easements to it. Uh, so, no, I'm I'm not optimistic about the long-term future. I mean, it might be. I mean, the long-term future there'll be different people with different perceptions. You know, Florida might be a wonderful place in in the eyes of the the beholder thirty years from now. It goes into my next question, which is. What keeps you up at night regarding Florida's environment? Is that it? Is that the the development part, the the change in the people that live here? Well, I think about that stuff during the day, but I don't try to dwell on it at night. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't keep me awake at night. So, you know, I, I mean, there's not anything I can do about it. 
Uh, so, you know, it's kind of like the national politics. I mean, we're, we're all divided and, you know, who's going to be the next president? And my wife worries about that a lot. But I just tell her that there's nothing we can do about that. No use to uh, fret. So I, I don't fret about, I mean, I, I have my opinion, and I think the development of Florida is not a good thing. Uh, but that's that's only my opinion. So I watch Western movies at night. That's what I worry about. How is James Arnest going to uh, make it through the next Gunsmoke? I hear you. That's a good. That's a good one. I like it. What advice would you give young people who are just entering or have an interest okay. in entering the okay. environmental field, whether it's through public service or in the private sector? Maintain your integrity. Be honest. You know, call the shots with with facts and not fantasy. Look at all the angles and options of a, of a given issue and be faithful to your beliefs. If they're environmental beliefs, be faithful to that. I think that's a great place to end. Estes Whitfield, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to Water for Fighting. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use. And don't forget to leave that five-star rating and review. You can follow the show on LinkedIn and Instagram at FLWaterPod. And you can reach me directly at FLWaterPod at gmail.com with your comments and suggestions for who and or what you'd like to know more about. Thanks again to Rez and Scene Drawing for making this podcast possible. Please be sure to check them out at www.res.us and www.cnshoreline.com Production of this podcast is by Lonely Fox Studios Thanks to Carl Soren for making the best of what he had to work with and to David Barfield for the amazing graphics and technical assistance A very special thank you goes out to Bo Spring from the Bo Spring Band for giving permission to use his music for the podcast The song is called Doing Work for Free and you should definitely check the band out live or wherever you get great music Join me next time for another amazing conversation with someone who has helped shape water and environmental policy in the Sunshine State. Until then, keep your whiskey close and your water closer. Mm-hmm.